All right, well, once again, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all you moms. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24? And if you are new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel. We have come to chapter 24 this morning. In Matthew 24, we have presented a uh, prophetic teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ, commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, which simply means his discourse or teaching he gave his disciples on the Mount of Olives just before his crucifixion. And this is a teaching given by Jesus in response to a couple of questions his disciples asked him in verse 3. Now, before we get to that, okay, I just want to say this. There are those in the church telling us, and I've heard this before, that we should not involve ourselves in biblical prophecy. All these churches focusing on biblical prophecy, that's counterproductive to the present in doing the work of God's kingdom on the earth. You know, you're looking at the future, you're not worried about the present, okay? All you're worried about is looking at the future and Jesus coming back. I mean, how are you going to be of any use to God right now? Well, let me just answer that by saying this. When the disciples came to Jesus and asked him about what was going to happen in the future that would signal his coming, he didn't rebuff them. All right, he didn't put him down. He didn't say, oh, stop it. That's not, you shouldn't want to know that. That's counterproductive. To he gave them the greatest discourse in the New Testament on the signs of his return to the planet Earth. In fact, John the Apostle went as far as to say that looking for Jesus' return is critical to living a holy life for the Lord here on the Earth. Remember what he said in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 3? He said, everyone who has this hope in them, the hope of Jesus' return, you know, the hope of the kingdom. Everyone who has this hope in them purifies themselves even as Jesus Christ is pure. In other words, if you keep looking for the signs of Jesus' return and you're always living in a state of expectancy, uh, that any moment the trumpet could sound, the angel could shout, and I might be standing in the Lord's presence, if I live with that awareness every day of my life as a Christian, I am not going to get tangled up in the cares of this life, I'm going to live a holy life. That's why I think this is critical, understanding this, and why we are taking our time through it. But the questions that the disciples asked Jesus, we see in verse 3. Now, as he sat in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the disciples asked two questions. First one was, when will these things be? What things are they talking about? Well, been with us in the study. If you go back to chapter 23, verse 38, he said to them, the temple is going to be left to you desolate. Not your house, okay, the temple. Will be left to you desolate. And then verse 2 of chapter 24, uh, he said that not one stone is going to be left upon another, speaking of the temple, that won't be cast down. In other words, he's saying that there is coming a day, we knew it happened 38 years from the point they asked the question, when the temple would be completely leveled. And they want to know, well, what will lead up to this temple being destroyed? That was the first thing. And the second question, which is more along the lines of where we all live, they asked, what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Now, be careful. They're not asking, as the King James wrongly translates it, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? They're not asking that. They're asking, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You have to understand the Jewish mindset. They were taught from the time they were children that Adam and Eve blew it in the, in the garden for all of us. And that brought upon the world an evil age of man's sin and rebellion. 
an age when, when mankind was ruling, and of course man's rule is always corrupt, they called it the age of Gentile dominion. And they longed for the day when Messiah would come to establish a new, king, a, a new age, a kingdom age, where, where the Messiah would reign from Jerusalem visibly over the whole earth, where the earth would be covered with peace and righteousness, uh, like the, the waters of the sea cover the earth right now. That's what they were asking. Lord, you say you're going away. You're, you can't go away. You're supposed to set the kingdom up. That's what we've been waiting for. That's what we've been hoping for. All right, well, then when are you coming back? What will be the signs of your return to establish this glorious kingdom age we've all been waiting for? We're sick of man's rule. We're sick of the evil and the injustice and the crime and so on, the murders and so on in the world. We want you to reign from Jerusalem. We want to have a, a glorious kingdom age on the earth. That's what they're asking. And so these questions we've been looking at. Now, the first one, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And so we've already dealt with this. Matthew doesn't really answer that question. Uh, Luke answers it because Luke records what Jesus, uh, what he said was going to happen before the temple was destroyed. That happened in 70 AD, by the way. If you're interested and you weren't here, just get the CDs or go online, access uh, the Matthew studies, and you can listen to the last couple of studies we've done. This is the third part in the signs of Jesus' return. But uh, we've talked about the temple being destroyed at length in the first part, I believe, and uh, that's what they want. That really related to them back then, primarily. But the second question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Well, that's a question we all <laughs> want to know about, all right? And that affects all of us. When is Jesus coming back to deliver us? And as Christians, more and more we long for the day when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. I mean, just watch the news. I mean, you know, Chicago, good heavens. These poor people in Chicago. It's a war zone. Summer hasn't even started yet. And already there's like 30, 40 shootings uh, every weekend. These kids can't even go outside to play. In fact, they're getting killed in their own homes by stray bullets. I mean, when you look at that, you go, Lord Jesus, come. Deliver us from this mess, this evil, and so on. So that's what they wanted to know now. As we've already said, and we have to review a little bit each time we do this for the sake of the new folks, but in verses 4 to 14, Jesus gives his disciples a quick overview of the last seven years before his return, which makes up the entire tribulation period. And the Lord Jesus divides the seven-year period into two halves. We're still reviewing, okay? The first three and a half years he refers to in verses 4 to 8, as the beginning of sorrows, the Greek is more properly translated as the beginning of birth pains. Okay, the beginning of birth pains. The second three and a half years, Jesus mentions in verses 9 to 14 and later calls in verse 21, great tribulation. Or in other words, we could liken it to the severe pains of a woman in hard labor. And the reason is because the last three and a half years will consist of the most severe and most comprehensive of all of God's judgments poured out on the world during the seven years. That last half of the seven years, last half of the tribulation period, is going to be loaded with the most horrific kinds of judgments you can imagine. You can read the last half of the book of Revelation to see what I'm talking about. These will be the most severe, which will lead up to Jesus' return and the birth of the kingdom. Now, before we look at these verses... I need to repeat one more time what I've been saying, which is critical to your understanding of this chapter. In this chapter, in Matthew 24, Jesus Christ is not addressing Christians. 
The church is not in view here. Remember, the church won't even be born for another 55 days on the day of Pentecost. We're just two days from Passover. And I have to apologize to those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks because I have, I've been saying this every week. But for the sake of the new folks, just give me a couple of minutes because if I don't explain this, the new people here this morning will be in the dark, and I don't want that. Okay, I want us all to be on the same page. All right. These guys at this point were not thinking like New Testament Christians. They're thinking like Old Testament Jews. Now, here's the thing. We Christians, we tend to read our Bibles this way. Old Testament written to the Jews, New Testament written to Christians. So we want to read into the New Testament. Every passage is about Christians. But you have to understand something. The Old and the New Covenants overlapped a little bit. John the Baptist was, in fact, the last prophet of the Old Testament period. His ministry overlapped with Jesus. Remember what John said? John said, Jesus' ministry must increase, I must decrease. He didn't say, he must start, I must stop. There wasn't a clean break between the two covenants. As such, when Jesus first showed up, he began to pick up where John left off, but initially even Jesus' ministry was directed towards the Jews exclusively. Remember when he sent out the 12 two by two? He said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because salvation was of the Jews. The gospel, Paul says, went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So we have to understand something. And when you read this here, and Jesus is, you know, it, it all gets into something we're going to study next time out of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel, or the seven-year period that God has set aside to deal with Israel. And that's why this here is Jewish territory. These guys are not thinking at this point like New Testament Christians. They're thinking, and rightly so, like Old Testament Jews. And in their mind, they want to know when you're coming back to establish the kingdom. They are asking a Jewish question to a Jewish Messiah, wanting to know when the Jewish promise of the kingdom is going to be fulfilled. That's why this is Jewish territory. Therefore, the events that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 are directed at Jews who are going to be living during a period of time yet future that the New Testament calls the tribulation period, but the Old Testament refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, we can see that clearly from the context. This is Jewish territory. What do I mean? Well, look at uh, verse 16. Jesus talks about Judea. Judea, okay? In verse 20, he talks about the Sabbath. Christians are not under the Sabbath anymore. The Jews are, okay? Also in verse 15, he talks about the prophecies written in Daniel that were written to the Jewish people. You know, there are many Christians, again, who read the church into this chapter and see in verses 40 to 42 a reference to the rapture. Two will be in the field, one taken, one left. Two will be in the bed, one taken, one left, and so on. Sounds like the rapture, doesn't it? I'll show you when we get there. It's not talking about the rapture. And there's reasons for that. Jesus' disciples weren't thinking about the rapture of the church. In fact, at this point, they didn't even know what the rapture was. The rapture, for the most part, was a mystery. Until God revealed the details to Paul, who then gave them to us, to the church, in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Matthew 24, guys, once again is Jewish territory, where the Lord Jesus was discussing events that will take place on the earth during this last seven years of human history as we know it, called the seven-year tribulation period. And we know what happens, because the Bible tells us. After the church is suddenly taken off the earth, 
1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17, talks about the rapture. How at one point, God's people who are alive on the earth are going to be caught up. Okay, the Greek word is harpazo. It means to be snatched away quickly. You know, suddenly we're here, one minute, next minute we're out, we're gone. We just disappear, okay? Now that's in preparation for God's judgment being poured out upon the world. God won't punish the righteous with the wicked. We are righteous in Christ. We've accepted him. We're not rebels anymore. There's no need for God to punish us. And so before he pours his wrath out upon this world, he removes us. He evacuates his church off the earth. We call it the rapture. In, in the Greek, the word hapazo, to be snatched away. In the Latin Vulgate, it's rapio, where we get our word rapture from. We know that after the church is taken out of here, there will initially be a period of peace and safety on the earth. You keep reading in Thessalonians, you get into chapter 5 then, verses 1 to 3, Paul talks about this. A time of peace and safety brought about in the world by the Antichrist, no doubt. And at this point, the world is going to think this guy is the true Messiah. The savior of mankind, he's going to have answers. Initially, he's going to bring the world into a, a time of peace and prosperity. But this will be followed by a terrible time of judgment and suffering that will start out mild, but will grow ever more intense as the world moves from the beginning of the tribulation period into the second half. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 3, when he says, For when the people of this world say, Ah, peace and safety. Here it is, utopia, the new age, you know. Here it is, we got the Messiah, you know, Maitreya Buddha. The different groups call him by different names. On the throne, okay, ruling over mankind. Look at the peace. Look at the prosperity he's brought the world into. But Paul says, when the world says peace and safety, then suddenly destruction is going to come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And that language is the very language that Jesus used to describe this final seven-year period, like a woman in labor. Of course, at the end of the seven-year period of judgment and tribulation, Jesus will return to the earth, will destroy his enemies, and will establish, finally, the long-awaited and promised kingdom age. Not just for the Jewish people, but for all those who believe in the Jewish Messiah, who is all of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, the first half, of the tribulation period, the beginning of sorrows. He gives us a quick overview in verses 4 to 8. We've already looked at these, but let me just real quickly review. The first thing he says to look for in verses 4 and 5 is widespread spiritual deception. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. I don't know what the signs of my coming are going to be. Here's the first one. Don't let anyone deceive you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Or in other words, I am the Messiah, and it will deceive many. We studied last time the tribulation period begins with the coming of the ultimate false Christ, the Antichrist. We saw this in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. He comes on the scene at the beginning of this final seven-year period, not as a military dictator, not at least right away. He comes as a humble peacemaker and problem solver. The world is going to thrust this guy into power. He's not going to take it by force. He's going to be thrust into this position of authority because the world is desperate for somebody to fix this mess. The church is removed. The world's in chaos. I mean, millions of people from all over the world are gone now. They've just disappeared, okay? The world's in chaos. Financial systems have probably collapsed. 
I mean, it's ridiculous what's going on after the church is out of here. Here comes this world leader, steps into the forefront. He's super intelligent, super articulate, super charismatic. Well, he's the devil's kid, basically, okay? He's the son of Satan. He will have supernatural abilities. The world is going to thrust this guy into power. He will take over and lead the world into a time of peace and prosperity. Now, as we read in Scripture, he quickly becomes a military dictator. But initially, he shows up like a lamb, having ten horns. But he turns into a dragon, basically. And when he comes, he's going to sign a covenant with the nation of Israel. Initially, he looks like he is so pro-Israeli, so pro-Israel. He signs this covenant. We read about that in Daniel 9, verse 27. And by the way, when he signs this covenant with Israel, that technically and officially begins the the clock ticking on this last seven-year period. But he'll sign this covenant with Israel that will protect them from their enemies. That's why they're going to think he's their Messiah. And I believe will contain a provision that will allow them to build their temple on the Temple Mount. We know the temple is rebuilt because the Bible tells it has to be rebuilt, but also Revelation chapter 11. As we move into the middle of the last seven years, we see the temple is already built. God gives John, who has a vision of it, a measuring read and says, go measure the Go measure the temple and its courts, but don't measure the outer court. It's profaned. It's been given over to the Gentiles. If you stock the temple on the, on the temple mount right now, it will put the dome of the rock in the outer court. Interesting. And I believe John sees that. I believe that's what the Lord was alluding to. It's been profaned. Don't measure the outer court. So initially, Israel is going to be deceived into believing that this man is their long-awaited Messiah. But as Jesus said, I came in my Father's name, and me you did not receive. Another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Saying that you've rejected your true Messiah, now you're going to be deceived by a false Messiah, the Antichrist. The next thing he tells them to look for is wars and rumors of wars in verses 6 and 7. There are going to be numerous wars that are going to break out across the world. But he says this, they're not going to lead up to the end. When you see them, don't get troubled because the end is not yet. What does he mean? I I believe he means this. These wars are going to break out primarily, but not exclusively, in the first half of the tribulation period. But they won't continue, it seems, until the very end of this seven-year period. Why is that? Well, first of all, these wars initially will break out all over the world as the forces of the Antichrist battle with those who are trying to fight against losing their national sovereignty. You see, when he comes, he's going to want to unify the world in a one-world government, right? Right? Of course, most of the people in this world think right now that's a great idea. There have been many people for years trying to get us into the mindset of thinking globally. They don't want us thinking nationally. They don't want you to have a strong national identity. That's why in the schools and everywhere else you talk about global this and global that, the global community. They've been trying to brainwash people for years to think globally. And when the Antichrist finally comes and is going to bring the world together into a one-world government, most of the people of this world are going to line up enthusiastically behind him. But you're going to have many people who are going to fight against it. They don't want to be assimilated into this one world government. They see the problems with it. They also understand, well, they also love their country. And they want to remain true to their nation. And so they're going to resist. They're going to fight. Of course, eventually the Antichrist will prevail. He will prevail. And those who submit will be given marks on their forehead or right hands, identifying them as loyalists to the Antichrist. 
Those that refuse all the resistance, they will be rounded up and eliminated. And as such, the need for war will diminish as time goes on, as the global government solidifies its power, and the people of this world capitulate more and more to the Antichrist's authority and control. That's where the wars begin to diminish. All the resistance has been taken care of. But I'll tell you another reason I don't think these wars last to the end of the seven years. And that is because God will start ramping up his judgments upon the earth during the second half of the tribulation period. And as God's judgments increase in intensity and frequency, just like the pains of a woman in labor, it will force people and nations to shift their focus away from fighting one another into simply survival mode. They're going to be so busy trying to stay alive through all these horrific cataclysmic judgments that are being poured out in the world, they don't have time to fight each other. All their time and energy is focused on just staying alive. Jesus also said one of the signs of this time leading up to his return will be famines. Well, we know that war and famine usually go together. Revelation chapter 6, verse 6 tells us that during this time, there will be a famine on the face of the earth so that people will work all day to make just enough money to feed themselves. Just enough money to buy bread for themselves for the day. Severe famine. Also, in verse 7, Jesus talks about pestilences or diseases. War brings death and famine. Death brings disease. That's true. That's part of it. But although even now, we are seeing new diseases emerging on the face of the earth as we speak. I try to keep on top of it. Not that I particularly like learning about diseases, but I see in it a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Where the stage is being set, okay? Things are being ramped up. The things that Jesus talks about in these verses, no, they're for a future time when the Antichrist emerges. But right now, the stage is being set. We are seeing an increase in earthquakes and famines and, and pestilence and so on across the world. They're nothing compared to what's coming. But you understand that we are seeing new diseases that have doctors very worried because they're, they're worried about pandemics breaking out, and they will eventually. Jesus talks about earthquakes in various places in verse 7. As we have said before, the world has always seen earthquakes. But these will be widespread and numerous on a scale the world has never seen before. And yet, as Jesus ominously said in verse 8, all of these things are only going to be the beginning of sorrows. In other words, the judgments of God during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period although severe in many ways, are going to be nothing compared to what's coming. I mean, when you compare the second half and those judgments to the first half, those first half judgments are going to seem mild by comparison. Again, read Revelation, the second half of the book. You can see what we're talking about. So Jesus, when he says, all these are just the beginning of birth pangs. It means what's coming in the last three and a half years, wow. You talk about horrific judgments. Most of the people of this world are going to be wiped out through the diseases and the earthquakes and the pestilences and so on. Now, verse 9 begins with the word what? Then, which designates the beginning of something. And I believe it marks the beginning of the last three and a half years, which Jesus in verses 9 to 14 also gives us a quick overview of. And the first thing he says will happen is Jewish believers will be martyred at an incredible rate. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up, again speaking to Israel, the Jewish people, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Guys, this is going to be a time marked by unprecedented 
anti-Semitism, and persecution of the Jewish people. They're going to be hated by all nations. When Jesus said all nations, he means the nation of America as well. And that should send shivers up our spine because, as God said to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And I believe that America's meteoric rise to superpower status after World War II is directly attributed in part to the fact that we helped Israel become a nation and we have been a major ally of Israel ever since. That has changed. This administration says they, are, they support Israel, but they're doing everything in their power to undermine Israel, to put them in a dangerous position. Primarily, they are, they are forcing Israel to give up land to the Palestinians, dividing the land God gave to the Jews. And if you read Joel chapter 3, verse 2, God says, I will judge that nation who divides my land. It is God who gave them that land. And any nation that presumes to say, no, we're going to take some of it away from you, give it to somebody else, God says, you know what, you're messing with the apple of my eye. I promised that land by covenant to Abraham and his descendants in perpetuity. You will answer to me, and we are answering to God already. Now, even though the context, guys, when he talks about the, these people being martyred, these believers, even though the context is primarily Jewish believers being martyred by the Antichrist, this will affect all believers in Jesus Christ at this time, both Jew and Gentile. Turn to Revelation 7. I'll show you what I mean. John is in heaven. He's been taken there by the Lord, and he has been given a vision, being given a vision, of the seven-year tribulation period. And he chronicles it for us in great detail. At one point, as John begins to see the second half unfold, in verse 9 of chapter 7 we read, After these things, John said, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus Christ, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jump down to verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the what? Great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just a little side note. Some people say these were Christians. Okay, these were, this is the church who was martyred during the tribulation period, because a lot of people have the church going through the tribulation period. All right? uh, but what do these do here? They are, they are in the temple. What are they doing? Serving the Lord day and night. What does the New Testament say we're going to be doing when we get to heaven? Sitting on his throne and reigning with the Lord as his bride. So this is a different group. These are tribulation saints, not the church, okay? But also Jesus said in verses 10 to 13, he said this is going to be a time characterized by worldwide chaos. Verse 10, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. 
that many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Guys, this is going to be a horrific and chaotic time for the people of this world. The world is going to begin to disintegrate. Suffering will become unbearable. And sin will reach its maximum potential. The world's systems and institutions will start to self-destruct under unbridled wickedness. But this is especially going to be a terrible and difficult time for those who are believers living during this period. Those who have rejected the Antichrist's rule. Their own loved ones will turn against them and turn them into the Antichrist forces. Matthew doesn't record everything Jesus says at this point in the Olivet Discourse, but Mark picks it up and gives a little more insight. In Mark chapter 13, verse 12, here's what Jesus went on to say about this. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Do you imagine this time? Families turning on each other? I mean, it will be a time much like the times that accompanied the rise of Nazism and communism. If you studied history, you know that during the rise of those totalitarian regimes, families, friends, neighbors, who once loved one another, began to turn on each other, began to turn in their loved ones and neighbors to the authorities because if they had neighbors or family members or friends that were against Hitler or against the new communist regime, because so many people believed at the time these were the answers to their problems. You know, this was the answer. Nazism, communism. That anyone who opposed the new regime was a real enemy of the state. And even though they're my family or my friends, I have to turn them in. It's going to be like that in the Antichrist. The world is going to be so enamored with this man. Of course, he will have supernatural charisma, intellect, wisdom he'll have supernatural powers to do miracles the world is going to think this guy is a god and anybody who opposes him has to be a devil it needs to be eliminated there's going to be a strange inversion of morality during this time the bible says people will worship satan thinking satan's the good guy in his um, antichrist which we call him the antichrist but his christ who the world thinks is the real Christ, they'll worship the devil and the Antichrist as God. And those believers at this time who worship the true and living God and Jesus Christ, they're going to be looked upon as the devil worshipers are today. Evil and need to be destroyed. And Jesus sums up the general attitude of people towards one another during the rise of the Antichrist regime in verse 12 when he says, because lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold, as you would imagine. During the rise of communism, people were so paranoid in these places where communism took hold. They were afraid to talk openly. They were afraid their neighbors were spying on them. The love of many grew cold, just like it's going to be in the future. But verse 13, Jesus said, But he who endures to the end shall be what? Saved. Now, folks, this has nothing to do with spiritual salvation from hell. It is a reference to being saved from the physical persecution of the Antichrist and his followers. In other words, if believers during this time of severe persecution and martyrdom, if they can somehow hide out, many will escape the Antichrist. 
if they can somehow hide out, escape the wrath of the Antichrist, if they can make it to the end of the seven years, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to return and you're going to get saved. In other words, I'm going to save you from the wrath of the Antichrist. I'm going to save you from the physical persecutions and martyrdom that he has been imposing on believers during this time. It's all about physical salvation when Jesus returns. And again, remember, it's not a reference to Jesus saving his church, which many Christians believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation period and come at that time at the end, which is post-tribulation theology, post-tribulation rapture. Um, rapture is called the blessed hope. Well, how is it a blessed hope if i got to go through the tribulation period? I mean, it's a blessed hope because I'm going to get spared, you know, I'm going to get zipped out of here before the tribulation starts. The church was already raptured before this seven-year period begins, we already said. We talked about this in greater detail last week, so get the CD. Again, guys, this is a reference to Jewish and Gentile tribulation saints who have hid out, who have made it to the end of the seven years. When Jesus comes, he's going to deliver them, save them from the wrath and persecution of the Antichrist. Now, and this gets into our study for next time. In verses 15 to 28, Jesus now zeroes in on the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, remember we said, often in the scriptures, God will give us a quick overview of something, like Genesis 1. God gives a quick overview of the six days of creation in chapter 1 of Genesis. Then in chapter 2, he zeroes in on the sixth day, the day that man was made, and focuses in on that particular day because mankind is the subject of the rest of the Bible. Man's fall and subsequent redemption, that's what the Bible's all about from that point on. So it's common for God to give a quick overview and then zero in on something to amplify it. That's what he does here. Verses 4 to 14, quick overview of the entire seven years. Starting in verse 15, running through verse 28, he focuses in, zeroes in now, on that last three and a half years to amplify it and give us greater details of what great, what this great period of tribulation will mean to the Jewish people primarily, but to all believers, really, who will be living at this time. And he begins this section in verse 15 with these words. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Matthew records these words, whatever, whoever reads, let him understand. Well, that's a pretty important thing to say. Jesus Christ begins to talk about what's going to happen now as, we, as they move into the second half of the tribulation period. And the first thing he wants to, to zero in on is a prophecy that God gave to Daniel that deals with this. And it's so important that Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you this and make sure you understand. You've read the prophecy uh, Matthew recording it. If you've read the prophecy in Daniel, make sure that you understand what it's saying. And next time we want to get together and begin to look at that. I mean, we'll look at that and other things. But I want to take you to Daniel chapter 9, because the scriptures come out of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And we'll look at that. Since Jesus said, you need to understand this, let's seek to understand it. But let me just say this. We're done. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, then you can say with me, you feel the same way I do. We are living in very exciting times. What these guys were asking to see, the signs we're seeing in our day, the beginnings of them, I should say. Of course, anyone who's not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, well, they have no peace. 
Okay, I mean, if I didn't have Jesus in my heart, and I was facing the, the things that were, every time you turn the news on, the horrific things going on around us, let me say this to you, don't get me wrong. I understand alcoholism. I understand drug abuse. I, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I understand it. I'll tell you, what do I mean? If I didn't have Jesus in my heart, I'd be stoned all the time. <laughs> Honestly, I would be stoned all the time. Because how are you going to face this world and all the problems and what's coming? And scientists say it's only a matter of time for a giant meteor hits the earth and blows it apart. And they've got pandemics that are brewing and they could erupt at any time. I'm thinking, I, I, I'd be blasted most of the day <laughs> just trying to get through the day. Isn't it great that when you have Jesus in your heart, you don't have to... It's a different kind of a high, isn't it? It's a different kind of joy. It's real, okay? It's not drug-induced. It's real. It's based on facts, evidence. But if you're not a born-again believer here this morning, I can fi- we can fix that for you. Don't leave here this morning without coming up here so we can talk with you. It's as simple as inviting Jesus to come into your heart. Now, let me tell you this. Salvation is free. It'll cost you everything to follow Jesus. So think about it. All right? Salvation is free. It'll cost you everything to follow Jesus. So if you are not ready to make that kind of commitment, you go home and pray. If you think to yourself, I'm ready. Man, this world is its bad. And it's only going to get worse. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come on up here so we can pray with you. His coming is near, even at the door. And like John, we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word because your word gives us uh, insights into what's coming so that that day, Lord, the day of judgment doesn't overtake us as a thief. We see the signs. We see, Lord, the things coming to pass that you've told us about. And Lord, as Paul says, we are not of the night nor of darkness. We are children of the day and of the light. Give us grace, Lord, to walk as children of light. And if any are sleeping in the light, as Paul admonished, it's high time they wake up out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And so, Lord, give us grace to to use whatever time is left wisely, to use it, Lord, um, faithfully to serve you. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes, that you have saved us. The wrath to come will not affect us. But give us grace to to reach out and help others come to know you before the end comes. So thank you, Lord. Father, we give you all this. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.